Bibles or your devices to Philippians and pop a finger in uh, John 15, uh, sorry, in Acts uh, 16 as well. Um, So I've got um, Acts 16, I'll be reading just two verses and then uh, uh, Trudy and Andy are going to help out with Acts 16 which is uh, a decent passage. Uh, We're starting a new uh, a new segment, uh, working through Philippians, and uh, Craig is going to kick that off uh, today. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Andy. Brother Craig has um, chosen Acts chapter 16. When he heard I was going to read, he chose a real long one. (laughs) So Acts chapter 16. So Paul came to Derby, then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish, a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in number. Paul and his companion travelled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word to the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas and during the night Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him come over to Macedonia and help us after Paul had seen the vision we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them from Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace And the next day we went to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman from the city of Theotira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded them. 
Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. And when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful to us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now go and leave, you can go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come out themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. Uh, thanks, uh, Andy and Trudy, and thank you, Craig. Welcome.
Okay, can you all hear me? Great. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you so much for a very, very warm welcome. I felt welcome from the moment I stepped in at the door. Uh, many people talking to me. The most wonderful cup of coffee. Rob, I don't know what you normally do for a living, but I think you could win Best Barista of, of the Year internationally. Really good cup of coffee. If you haven't had coffee here, I do encourage you to have a, have a taste. Good stuff. Just a bit about me, for those who may not know who I am and, and may be wondering what's that funny accent that you're hearing. So I, uh, I'm originally from Cape Town in South Africa, been here for nearly 14 years. I don't think my accent has changed, although when I have visited back and visited my family in Cape Town, they, they say that I do talk a little bit funny. I say yeah instead of yah and <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, I'm married to Carrie Ann and we've got three children. We have Jesse, our son, who's 19, and kind of, I, I think, halfway out the door. He lives at home. He was given a car by his uncle, and he, he comes and goes sort of more freely than before. And then a daughter, um, Becky, who is nearly 17, and then another daughter, Emma Kate, who is 14, and I think she is the boss of the house. <laughs> it's lovely to be with you all. Now, Michael asked me to, to preach, and he did this some time ago. He's, he's very well uh, prepared and organized, and as I said to someone earlier on, it's very hard to say no to Michael because he's such a lovely guy. He really is. He's, a, he's such a wonderful man. He loves the Lord, and so it's a great privilege for me to come and kick off the series, and he said to me, please kick off the series in Philippians. Please preach on the first two verses, and I went... A whole sermon. I must give a whole sermon out of the first two verses. And he had to kick off. So I thought, well, I will look a little bit at Acts 16 as well so we can understand how this church in Philippi began. So I, I just wanted to tell you that up front as, as to why I'm going to be in Acts 16 as well and be saying a lot of things before I actually get to those two verses. So let's, let's get into it. You know, when I was a boy, I and I think every boy is like this, I loved superhero movies, and they're still around to this day. Like, I was a boy a long, long time ago, and I remember when the first Superman movies came out. It was Christopher Reeve was the actor back then, and he was my favorite, Superman, uh, over Spider-Man, over, you know, all the others. He was my favorite because he had so many powers. The bullets would bounce off him. He could fly and he was so strong, super strong, could fly around the world and, and change you know, uh, geographic dynamics. He had x-ray vision. He had radar hearing. So he could hear what you're saying. He could see, probably see through your clothes. That's no good. Um, he could freeze things with his breath. So he's super, super powerful. And for a, for a boy that, that's, that knows that there are people in the world that are a problem, even, even on the playground at school... You, you take great delight in seeing evil being opposed by such powerful force. And I think all of us, as we think of evil in the world, we want to be invincible over evil. It makes us happy when there is justice and a powerful force comes in and meters out justice. But all too often in this world, evil is too strong. It's just so powerful, and we don't have the ability to overcome it. Imagine living in Europe 
during the time of World War II, imagine being identified as a Jew in Nazi Germany and then the countries that Nazi Germany got control over. How would you have felt, particularly in the early days, as politics is turning against you, as society is turning against you? Imagine the fear as the situation gets worse and worse. Now imagine that you're in a society that hates Christians. And that is your identity. You are a Christian. Imagine it just gets worse and worse. And more and more, your kind is not in favor. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with opposition? Well, Paul is writing to a church that is facing opposition for their faith. And he himself has faced opposition for being a Christian and for preaching the gospel. He's faced opposition again and again. Even as he writes the letter that you're all going to be looking at going into the series that is, uh, is now being launched. Even as he writes this letter, he is under persecution where is he writing from? He's writing from prison, in a sense. He's under house arrest in Rome. There's a guard outside making sure that he stays there. Why is he under house arrest? Because of his faith, because of his preaching, because he's a Christian. And it's not the first time that he has faced trouble like this. Because of his faith... The Philippian church knows very well that he was once in their city put in jail. He was put in stocks. We read that in Acts 16. Let's understand a bit of the background to this letter because it, it helps us to understand then the whole letter. Now we read the story in Acts 16. And we saw there that because of a vision, Paul was called to preach the gospel in Macedonia. That's a whole region. And he went to Philippi. That's where he went first. And that's the leading city of that region. It's a few days in to him going there with Silas. And they go look for a place to pray. They go to the riverside. And there they meet some women who have gathered there. One of those women is Lydia. She hears the gospel from them. She believes. And it seems that she becomes the first convert of the church in Philippi. Then we read about a slave girl becoming a convert. This, this girl had a demonic spirit in her that enabled her to tell fortunes. And so her owners were now angry because she's now come to Christ. She's delivered of that spirit. They can no longer make money from her. They are furious. And so the trouble began because of that. Paul and Silas were accused by the owners of troublemaking. They stirred up the people, a riot then erupts, and the magistrates of Philippi have Paul and Silas thrown in jail and put in stocks. Then in the jail, the, the miracle happens where the Lord unshackles Paul and Silas and everyone else, and yet they don't, they don't leave. Prisoner, the prison officer wants to kill himself, the jailer wants to kill himself, He's, 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 he's failed to do his job, so it seems. 
But this is God at work. No one has left. It results in the conversion of the jailer. He comes to faith. And this is how this church started. It's so exciting. It's so wonderful. This is the new church. And think about this. The first convert is Lydia. And we're told in the text in Acts 16 that she was a seller of purple cloth. Now, that might not mean much, but in, in that time, purple cloth was particularly expensive because of the dye that was needed to make it. It was very hard to come by that dye and to produce that dye. So you would not be wearing purple unless you were very, very wealthy. And so she's trading in something that's quite expensive. So she's probably a wealthy woman. So you have someone of wealth as the first convert of the church. Then on the other side of the spectrum, you have a slave girl. And she comes to faith. And then I think the jailer would probably be somewhere in the middle. as a middle class person in society. And here we have this fledgling church, as we see in Acts 16, beginning and made up out of people from all walks of life. You see, God, God isn't interested in your standing in life and your, and your wealth and all that sort of thing. And he's brought people from all kinds of stations of life. It's so exciting. It's so lovely to be, to be God's people, no matter who you are, where you're from, whatever your tribe or tongue is. That's what I, I, I love so much about the church that I'm in at Bull Creek. It's, it's tribes and tongues from all over the place. When we have church lunch, you can see it reflected in the food that people bring. I love it. All the different flavors. This is God. It's a miracle. God has brought people together. Uh, th there's no such thing as uh, in the world as this kind of unity and wonder of the church. But as we've seen, for this lovely church that God has brought together, there was trouble. We saw in Acts 16 that a riot was stirred. Now, if your finger is still there, or if you still have Acts 16 open, I want to read to you Acts 16, verses 20 to 23. Acts 16, 20 to 23. It says this, They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. See, difficulty comes around because of the gospel. It often happens like that in the New Testament and all around the world today. Because people hate the gospel. They hate God. They hate his word. The, these words of the gospel emanate from the one of truth, the source of all truth. And people naturally do not like God. He has to change their hearts for them to accept this truth. If he doesn't, they're going to stand against it. Now, thinking about the letter to the Philippians that Paul is writing, we ask the question, and I've touched on it already, we ask the question, where is he writing from? Effectively, he's writing from being under house arrest in Rome. But the church that he started with Silas back when he was in Philippi, the, the Philippian church cares about Paul. So much so that they have sent help to him to cover his needs. And that help was brought by someone from Philippi called 
Epaphroditus. And now Paul is sending Epaphroditus back to them, and there's a letter. And this is the letter that's being carried. This letter that will be read out to the church from Paul. And so this background tells us how Paul had a warm relationship with these people in Philippi. Go to the letter now in, in Philippians and look at, at verses 3, 4, and 5 and see how he speaks about them right at the start. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. He, he is excited about these people. He loves these people with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I, and I could show you more, but this is not my area. Michael's probably going to be preaching, maybe Tom, I don't know, through the rest of this. But, so I don't want to go and steal what they're going to say, but I just want to point out to you this great warmth of relationship. And you can see it carrying on in the text. Now I want to ask, with all that background, what is the reason for writing this letter? In, in one sense, it's a thank you letter because they sent help to Paul with Epaphroditus. But I think there's a key reason why Paul puts pen to paper. He wants them to continue strong in the gospel. There is opposition. He doesn't want them to shrink back. He doesn't want them to crumble under pressure. He tells them about his focus while he's under pressure. So if you have a look at verse 20 in chapter 1, you'll see this. Paul says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, for Paul, it's all about Christ no matter what happens to Paul, it's, it's about Christ. Whether he lives or dies because of the opposition, he doesn't want to be ashamed. It's about Christ. He wants to exalt Christ. That's the heartbeat of Paul's life. It's all about Jesus. Have a look at verse 21. He says, for me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Everything about Paul's life is based on Jesus. Everything he does is shaped by the gospel. This is Paul's identity. This is the center of who he is. He is Jesus-shaped. And nothing can change that. If they kill him, Paul says to die is gain. It's amazing, isn't it? It's, I find this astonishing. May I ask you to pause for a moment and think about your life. Are you a Christian? I take it that most of you are, if not all of you. How much does Jesus make up your identity? Just in preparing for this, I'm asking myself the same question. Craig, how much does Jesus make up your identity? Is Jesus the center of all that you are? Craig, are your priorities shaped by Jesus and the things that he says in his word, in the scriptures? How, how do we use our time? How do we use our resources, our talents? 
All these things shaped by Jesus. What if our society becomes so hostile to the gospel that perhaps your job is under threat or key relationships in your life, friends and family, if those relationships are under threat, what if even your very life comes to be under threat because you are in Christ? A friend of mine, a pastor in the UK who's now with the Lord, knew a Romanian pastor back in the days when Romania was under the regime of Nicolae Ceausescu, under a dictator, communist regime. Uh, Ceausescu was known for being harsh and wicked and uh, certainly against Christians. He led Romania from 1965 to 1989. One time, the, the police came to this pastor and put a gun to his head and they ordered him to deny Jesus or die. And this pastor replied with these wonderful words, which, which my friend, uh, Justin Mote is my friend, and he said, these words came from the pastor's mouth to the police. You threaten me with death, which is to threaten me with life, which is no threat at all. They didn't shoot him. They left him. There is a man whose identity is so settled in Jesus that he is utterly secure in the face of great evil. Remember what Paul said in Philippians? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Of course it's gain. You be with Jesus face to face, free from all the troubles of this world. And then Paul says this to the Philippians, chapter 1, 27 and 28. Whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Look at verse 28. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. I think this is core to why Paul is writing, the reason for writing. It is a letter seeking to encourage them to stand firm in proclaiming the gospel, to stand firm for Christ no matter what happens. Paul writes to them, motivating them to live lives shaped by their Christian identity. Now, let's go to Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and spend some time around there. The particular area that Michael asked me to look at with you. These verses are the greeting and the signature of the letter. Now, in our letters that we write today, typically, we have the greeting at the start. So we say, dear so-and-so. I often write my email, emails with hello, so-and-so. And then we have the signature at the end. 
Now, in a handwritten letter, you don't know who it's from, you, unless you're expecting it or you know the handwriting. You wouldn't know who it's from until you go to the end. When I was at school, long before digital stuff, we were taught to write different kinds of letters. And we were taught to sign off letters, particularly if you're writing a familiar one, one to a friend or family, we're taught to sign them off as things like, if you're writing to mum and dad, to write at the end, your son, Craig, or your friend, Craig. That's how we would sign it at the end. But in the ancient Near East, the time that Paul is writing, you had all the information at the top. So let's look at this information to understand who these people are, to get a sense of their identity. See, knowing who you are, knowing your identity will help you to stand firm, I think, which is what, what is Paul's great concern. So the first thing I want to point out is what Paul calls himself and Silas. He, he says that they are servants of Christ Jesus, servants. In fact, if you go to the original word behind that in the Greek, it could be translated as slaves of Christ Jesus. Now, that tells you a lot about Paul and Silas, a lot about their thinking about themselves, their identity as they understand it. I mean, it's quite something to say that you are a servant or, or a slave. I mean, he's, he's the great leader of the church. He started the church. He's in authority. But he makes it so very clear to them that he's not his own. He belongs to Jesus. You know, that's so different to the way the world works. People in the world like to lord it over other people. When they've got position, it's quite typical in the world to have the attitude where you puff out your chest and say, I'm the boss. And you push your position over other people. There's an old TV advert from South Africa days that I love. I've never forgotten it. It's a tea advert. And... Its message is this tea will just make you so calm in, in the most stressful situations. The scene is an airline ticket desk at the airport. A well-dressed man of some importance comes up to the desk. He's desperate to get onto a flight at the last minute. And he demands a last-minute ticket onto that flight. And the airline employee, the young woman says to him, it's too late. I don't know if it's that they can't remember if it was because there's no seats left or because it's just too late to get the man processed to get onto the flight. She says, it's too late. And the man gets so angry with her and he leans forward towards her and goes, do you know who I am? And she calmly takes a sip of her tea. So there's no stress. And she picks up the microphone for the airport intercom system. And she says this, Attention, ladies and gentlemen, there is a gentleman, gentleman here who does not know who he is. <laughs> if anyone can help, please come to the ticket desk. And the look of amusement on his face is just so lovely to see. It's so well acted. I love that advert. His attitude in the middle of that whole thing. Do you know who I am? You know, that is so typical of many in the world. The Christians are not like that. We're not meant to be like it anyway. 
we, we're not meant to be bossy, we're not meant to be full of self-importance because we belong to Christ Jesus, King Jesus. That's our identity. And that shapes how we act. We are not afraid to speak the gospel because we serve the Lord. We don't serve men. What people say about our preaching the gospel, our standing for Christ, has no place in shaping what we do. Because we are servants, and all Christians are servants of Jesus. I think also in mentioning this, that he's a servant, Paul is making very clear to them that what he has to say to them comes from Jesus. That he's a man under authority, bringing what is from the great king to them. But it's an identity statement. This is who we are. We are servants of King Jesus. And it applies to all those who are under Christ. Servants. The second thing is the signature. Who the letter is from. Is, uh, sorry, the second thing is who it is to. We've just looked at the signature, who it's from. Now the greeting. Paul addresses the Philippian church as God's holy people. Holy people. The direct translation from the original language is saints. He's calling them saints. I want you to notice he's calling all the people of the church saints. So these are people, these are all Christians, saints. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, in their theology, very few people are saints. Very, very few. They have to have done especially great things to be considered a saint. In Australia, do you know that in the Roman Catholic Church there's only one saint? Only one saint, Mary MacKillop. And that's a relatively recent decision that was made. But Paul is saying that all Christians are saints. If you put your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus so that your sin is dealt with by him and you are made righteous before God because your sin goes on to Jesus and his righteousness comes onto you, you are clothed in his righteousness. If that is you, then you are right with God. You, you are holy. You are a saint. And so I want us to see from this that there's more to our identity. We are servants of King Jesus, and we are also saints. It's so key to who we are that where you are from in the world is of lesser importance. The fact that you are a saint, that's the big thing of your identity, Christian. Where you come from in the world, that's a lesser thing. So it doesn't matter whether you live in Perth or you know, you're from London or Jakarta or New Delhi or wherever. To be a saint is, is key to your identity. So look at verse 1. To all God's holy people in Christ at Philippi. Do you, do you get the implication? The big thing about them is you are holy people. And you are God's holy people who in this case are at Philippi. There are saints in other places. Yes, saints in Armadale here in Perth. Saints at Bull Creek in Perth. Saints in London. Saints in Jakarta. 
saints in New Delhi. So being a saint is the great marker of a person if they are a Christian. I have a friend who uh, I know from South Africa days who now lives in London and he works for an organization that produces material for children's ministry. And he travels all over the world running seminars, training people in this material. So he's based in London, he's been to Eastern Europe, he's been uh, all over the UK, he's been all over Africa, he has been in Perth. He tells the story of when he first went to Germany to go and deliver seminars there. He was collected at the airport by a stranger, by a person foreign to him, by a person with a language foreign to his and a culture foreign to his. And he just remarked on Facebook at how they so quickly connected and that they had a depth of relationship that began from the moment he met the person, a special depth that is not normal for strangers. Why? Because the two of them, Rory, my friend, and his, uh, the person who collected him, the German person, well, they're both saints and servants of King Jesus. That's your identity. That's who you are if you're a Christian. Now, in this, Paul goes on to mention elders and deacons, and I'm not sure why they get a special mention here, and other commentators I've looked at have said they're not sure either. Uh, There is no evidence in the rest of the letter as to why they are specially mentioned, but I do want to point out something here. As an aside, I think the fact that he, he mentions the elders and the deacons is evidence to us that the church is led by a plurality of, of men that do this job. So it's not meant to be just the pastor. There is, there is a plurality of leadership. I'll put that to you as an aside. Now the last thing that Paul says to them is this in verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace means gift. This is Paul's desire that God's good gifts and God's peace be theirs. Christians are already recipients of grace, of course, the ultimate grace, the gift of forgiveness that makes us saints and brings peace between us and God. That's grace in its ultimate sense. But in Him, we find ongoing grace and peace in all kinds of ways. The grace of our prayers being heard because we know the Lord. That's a, that's a wonderful gift that we are heard. The grace of his word and his indwelling spirit to shape us. Later in the letter, Paul calls them not to be anxious about anything and then to rather pray about every situation and what will happen? Have a look at chapter 4 and verse 7. It says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You can rest in Him. I'm seeing that peace in someone's life right now. I, I have three sisters, and one of them lives in Israel. 
And as you probably know from the news, Israel is under serious attack right now. She's been in, in the bomb shelter with her family, heard the bombs going off as the missiles land, uh, seeing the dreadful news of people being killed and attacked just in their houses. And I was talking to her last night, and her peace is phenomenal. She trusts the Lord. She knows that to live is Christ and to die is gain. This comes from the Lord. And so, verse, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, uh, when he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he is saying that grace and peace come from them, from the Father, from the Son. And he is concerned that these people facing opposition, which is a scary thing, he is concerned that they find their rest in the Lord. The one to whom they belong as servants. The one who has made them saints. Paul wants them to be well. If your identity is that you belong to Jesus and are a saint because of what he has done for you, then you have grace in your life and you have peace in your life. And so as we conclude, Paul is a man whose well-being is absolutely sound. Why? Because he is saturated in the gospel. This gospel which gives him his identity. And so he can say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. His identity comes from the gospel. And we too are able to stand firm in all kinds of circumstances, in, in all kinds, under all kinds of opposition. We can stand firm when we understand who we are. We don't need to be supermen. We don't need superpowers to be confident. We belong to Jesus. We are his servants. And he has made us holy. We are saints. We are fit for heaven because of what he's done. And so to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so we can face all kinds of pressure in this world. For what can people do? What can humans do to take away from us this profound identity? So brothers and sisters, let's be confident in Jesus. And if you don't know him, please would you speak to one of us. Speak to me or to Gary, uh, to Tom or others that you know who are believers who can point you to Jesus. It's so good to belong to Jesus. It's so good to be a saint. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word in the scriptures that gives us confidence that no matter what we face, because of who we are, we are safe and we can say that to live is Christ and to die is gain. For those of us who are believers, would you please help us to understand afresh and with perhaps more depth who we are. 
And that from that would flow confidence in this world where on a global scale we are relatively safe living in WA. But even in our culture, things have been changing. Help us not to be afraid. Help our, our identity to give us great confidence. And also, uh, those who may not know you, Lord, we pray for them that you would touch their hearts and see that in you, people are made fit for heaven and there is nothing to fear, only glory to look forward to. And so please stir hearts that may not know you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.